This is, we're now in the green season. Uh, the uh, focus of the green season is uh, the nature, ways and means, cost of Christian discipleship. In the bulletin, I have Vicki Black's blurb from uh, Welcome to the Church Year, uh, our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another through our prayers, the sacraments and life in the body of Christ the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the church in its mission. So that gives the preacher a fair latitude over the next 26 weeks to talk about a lot of different things. <laughs> Today, I want to say something about Christian obedience. And I want to say something about why we would even want to talk about obedience. And, and maybe something about what kind of a God do we want to be obedient to I've been listening for, I don't know why I'm fascinated by this, but on YouTube, I've been listening to a lot of these famous uh, evangelical preachers that are on YouTube who are continuously talking about the sovereignty of God, God's sovereignty, and that you and I really, if the truth be told, should be scared to death about uh, making a false move. That this is something that we need to be serious about in spite of all of the claims of grace and the love and everything else. One false step and you're liable to be in hot water. And so the idea of obedience in, this, in that context would be, I guess I better because I could get myself into some real hot water. So I'm thinking maybe obedience uh, is a good thing. But maybe the biblical text even gives us some examples of how we might understand the reciprocal nature of obedience and uh, why it also is true that in our culture, obedience is kind of a non-starter because it, it, it impinges on individualism and uh, finding your own level and self-esteem and a variety of other kinds of things. You know, I've quoted to you before G.K. Chesterton's um, line that he wrote, a famous Christian writer of the 20th century, about when people stop believing in God doesn't mean that, they'll st that they stop believing, it means they'll believe anything. <laughs> and the same thing is true with obedience. People don't think obedience maybe is important about the, the observation of minute religious or religious minutiae, but I know people who will undertake hair-raising austerities and be obedient to certain practices if they think it'll make them more attractive, richer, or more able to connect with people of power and influence. And that is, that is part of uh, the culture in which we live. So obedience isn't unimportant. It just maybe needs to be understood sometimes differently. It comes from a Latin word called, I think, abedure, which means to listen. So obedience has something to do with listening and paying attention and being attentive and also to uh, see that this is an important thing to do about a whole lot of different things. In two of the readings today, there are maybe different forms of obedience that we're being or, or being introduced to. The first and most important is the famous story of Abraham and Isaac which is in Genesis that we read today. This story 
comes up in the Christian year, and we see it most often year to year in the uh, Lenten, Holy Week, Easter liturgies. We read the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I think for some people, particularly in this politically correct era, that reading a horrifying story like that is, is just, you know, I've, I've had parents say, how, you know, we, we can't read this story to children. What are they going to think, right? Or somebody's all, you know, worked up about it. It's, the same, it's like those who don't want to read the passion narratives. They're just too, these stories are too, too much for them. And yet this is an extremely important story, both about obedience and the way God works and the way obedient people respond or listen. So let's talk a little bit about the story uh, just about the listening, um, did you notice that about three at least three times in this text, Abraham said, here I am. He heard God and he said, here I am, I'm here. The first here I am was take Isaac up to the mountain and sacrifice it. Now, I may have spoken to you about this before. When I went to seminary, you usually have to read on the syllabus and all the subjects some sort of introductory material, and we had about three or four different introductions to the Old Testament, Bernard Anderson, you know, the thing. And, and what we found out, or I found out, was that Abraham was a Canaanite. He was from Canaan, which is in the, in the Middle East, and he was part of the Canaanite culture, he spoke, I think the language was Chaldee, I'm not sure, Ernest may remember, but it's one of those. And he was, in fact, if the truth be told, Abraham may be a tribal memory or a composite of historical people, but is somebody who is like a patriarch. He exemplifies, and that would maybe even make this story uh, sharper as the result. But he practiced Canaanite religion before his, he was part of that culture, he took, and here, here was part of Canaanite religion. You sacrificed your oldest, your firstborn son. Human sacrifice, when they were about eight or nine. Well, how do you know that? We know that because we have archeological digs and sites where it's full of bone skeletons of baby boy, or young boys, eight or nine years old, and some burned up ashes, things mixed up together, and, you know, stone markers and all that sort of business. Uh, there's a very few who disagree with this, that it was, in fact, being done. They, they think it's something else, but the evidence is thin for that case. So Abram, and who now is Abraham, uh, is being obedient to God's wish within the context of that religious expression. You always need to remember we think about the Old Testament as Judaism. There was no Judaism when Abraham, there was none of this. Judaism is, in fact, I'm not even sure by the time of Jesus people would refer to what they were doing as Judaism, but it, whatever, be that as it may. It's, a, it, it's the sort of religious uh, coming to consciousness about God's presence. The people of Israel are a people haunted by a presence. That's clear. 
So God tells Abraham to go do this, which was really saying I'm, he's listening now to the cultural demands, to the religious demands of his people. And he is to sacrifice this boy who is very precious because it is his only son that he has had with Sarah. And it is her only child. And you know in the story, she has him when she's 75 years old. Let's not go there, but that's what the story <laughs> says. So this is, you know, he has other children. He has about four or five other children, but they're from slave women or servant women and so forth. So uh, he has this boy, Isaac. And he's going to take him now and sacrifice him. So we go through the story, and it's kind of, if you would read it, uh, you know, there's a certain, the kid is saying, where's the, where's the ram, the sheep that, that we're going to sacrifice? Well, the Lord will provide. And they walk together. They're walking together. You know, Abraham isn't, I mean, Isaac isn't following, but Isaac's got the sticks on his back for the, but they're walking together. So they get to the place and they make the pyre and Abraham ties him up. He, he binds him and he puts him down on the pyre and he gets the knife and he's about ready to sacrifice him. And the, 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 the God speaks to him through an angel and there's another, here I am. And he said, I know, I know you are obedient. I know that you uh, know who I am and all of that. You don't have to do this. You don't have to. So you can read that as a story of saying, see, he was being obedient to do something horrific. Now he's let off the hook. Uh, here's what I think, and this is David Brewer. Um, I imagine the story of him coming back with Isaac. He shows up in the so all the patriarchs and some of the matriarchs are probably in there and here he walks into the clearing and he's got the boy and they say gee Abraham I see that you have Isaac with you and he said yes well why didn't you sacrifice him God told me that I didn't have to do that. Why does our religion require that to be faithful we have to kill our oldest, our firstborn sons? That doesn't seem to make sense. Listen, Abraham, we've been over this. <laughs> if you don't do this, no crops, the lambs drop, Somebody in competition with us in some, you know, territorial dispute is going to knock the daylights out of us. We, you, we all had to do it, and you, you've got a knuckle under. I cannot believe that we worship a God who would require this. Now, here's what the archaeology gives up to us. If we date Abraham at a certain period in the B.C.s, you know, 1700 uh, that practice stopped. There was the bones, then the next, no more. No more child sacrifice. It stopped. 
So it's just possible that God may work through each of us and amend and reform our manners, morals, and customs. And we see that as sensitive people spiritually as God's revelatory work in our community and in our personal lives. <coughs> and we believe that. And we think that all of us who are in community together and in relationship uh, should be obedient to that belief and that knowledge. And we see the historical information, apparently, that no more. It's, it's over. There are probably more examples, even in the biblical witness, of, of changes in the way people did things. Uh, there are some equal examples of things that appear to have gone on and on uh, in the Bible that didn't get uh, sort of cleared up till afterwards, right? In the New Testament, slavery is just presupposed. There's, there's no, no moral outrage about slavery. It just is, right? And as people begin to be faithful to the values of the gospel, after the writing of the New Testament, we begin to get people saying, you know, this is not a this 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 is a more this is a moral evil. It needs to stop. It took a long time, but uh, that's how God's revelatory work could be seen to work in the hearts of faithful people. So this is a story about the right kind of obedience to really listen. And Abraham took some big risks to do this. He could have been ostracized. He could have been shunned, and so forth. I suspect that what he did was model behavior that was being felt by everybody who felt they had were compelled to do this and just did not have the ability uh, to uh, not do it. And isn't that true for so many of us? I had uh, one of my organists at Christ Church Sausalito said one time when I was at a dinner party with her, she said, we were talking about uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany. And she said, you know, when all this stuff started, like suppose here we are in Sausalito, and all of a sudden, next Tuesday, no more Jews. The Jews were all gone. I like to think, I'd say to somebody who was, you know, somebody in, where are the Jews? Where have they gone? She said, I like to think that I would do that, that I'd stand up for this, but probably not. So what Abraham did was uh, pretty big, and that's why we read the story over and over again. It isn't just Abraham being obedient to some sovereign God that is, uh, you know, I, I heard a sermon on YouTube where a guy said, God does not like everybody. He does not like everybody. That's the biggest myth that's been foisted on people over for, for ages, you know? Well, gee. 
would you ever get yourself in a position, if you had to believe that, to say, well, I guess God, take your best shot. Abraham said, it isn't right, we're not, I'm I'm not going to do it. I listened to God. I believed that this came from God. Somehow we had missed the boat in our understanding of what God is like. And it seems to me that you and I on a daily basis have always got to keep that conversation going personally and as a community. You know, we have a lot of cockamamie notions about what God is like and who God is. Now, here's the situation on the ground in Matthew. Very short gospel today uh, about, you know, receiving people and being hospitable and uh, uh, listening to what they have to say. Matthew was probably a, a rabbi, a former rabbi. He was a Jewish Christian. Here's what happened historically. In 70 AD, the Roman army came into Jerusalem and sacked the city and burned it down, including the temple. And many of the people there, including the Jewish Christians, scattered. They ran away. So Christianity begins as a sect of Judaism in an era when there were lots of different Jewish sects. And these Jewish Christians who had been in the ascendant in Jerusalem and in its precincts and other parts of the diaspora now fled. And we begin to see the message of Jesus and the belief in the Messiahship of Jesus be advanced and believed by Gentiles. And in Matthew's Jewish synagogue, which may be in Antioch, his his synagogue is now 80% Gentile. So if you're a Jew who is keeping the law and believe in Jesus as the Messiah and think you need to commend that to how people to people in terms of how to live you know so all males must be circumcised you must observe the sabbath you must observe the uh, purity rules with regard to food and table fellowship those are sort of the basic things so you need to do that and you believe and, and believe in Jesus as the Messiah the savior Well, the Gentiles have absolutely no experience of this. They don't know anything about it. And are we going to require of them uh, that? All males now must be circumcised. Try that one on. (laughs) Right? Among other things. So, Jesus is speaking in his earthly ministry about how people should receive his messengers, the evangelists who are going out, right? Embedded in this text is something that's in a very famous text in the Bible about when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we visit? When were you in prison and we visited you? When were you naked and we clothed you? For as much as you have done this to the least of these, you have done it to me. Most preachers preach on that text as being the great call for social responsibility. And really what it's about is something called the Shaliot principle. 
which means if you reject the messenger, you reject the sender of the message. So somebody's going out and speaking about what Jesus has taught them, and if they're rejected, Jesus is rejected. So that's sort of in this too. It doesn't mean, God forbid, that all those things aren't important and absolutely central to our common life. Please don't misunderstand me. But the fact of the matter is, it is also people's willful refusal to listen. And so, Jesus is speaking today about, you know, if you are hospitable and open to prophets, to people who are, are coming in here to uh, share their perspective on the gospel, to perhaps give some assistance to Matthew's uh, church, synagogue, about how to cope with Gentiles who believe in Jesus, listen to them. And receive that. And of course for us in 2011, that may have to do with our ability to uh, listen to people of diverse opinions. You know, I guess the greatest tension, isn't it, is how do you do that and maintain your own sense of integrity and, what, and, and the principles that you hold? And how are, how are we able to do that uh, in a way that, that preserves that and at the same time uh, uh, errs on the side of generosity with how people uh, react? You know? I mean, sometimes don't you find people come in and are advancing in opinions in your presence and you think to yourself, I don't know if I can stand this for one more minute. <laughs> right? But in some way, the generous impulse uh, is maybe to suffer fools a little more gladly, even though that becomes very difficult. And that maybe we're called to do that and to be hospitable. And there is a reward that we receive, you know. It's becoming um, a better human being. It's becoming a better transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. So this week, think a little bit about how God has acted on your manners, morals, and customs, if at all. What, what ones would be a good, a good place to start? How do you think about obedience? Is it important at all? And um, how can you, as a Christian disciple, model that for the world or to the world? Amen. Amen.